would you describe your business model? <laughs> Rapacious. It's all about making money. Hello there, Underground Bunker. My goodness, today is 10 years to the day that TonyOrtega.org was brought to life on the internet. And uh, we began covering Scientology like a daily beat uh, at our own independent website. And 10 years later, we still have a wonderful commenting community. We've uh, covered so many stories about Scientology, broken so many important things. You've been with us all the way. I appreciate it so much. And after 10 years, we have not been sued. I, I can tell you when things started out, I, I was a little concerned about the idea of trying to cover Scientology. At that time, I was writing a book about Paulette Cooper. And, um, I, you know, I didn't have this major company uh, behind me to, you know, shield me from legal issues. Uh, I was very fortunate that Scott Paludic, who not only was uh, an attorney, but also helping me uh, put this website together as a webmaster, um, he, he really provided the, um, backing as far as the, you know, somebody I could talk to about legal issues. He would, he would read stories if I was concerned about legal review. Um, what a stalwart he's been, what a help and great guy Scott Paludic is. And after 10 years, we've not been sued. We haven't even had threat letters. Uh, we have been subpoenaed once. That happened last year at the Danny Masterson preliminary hearing when his attorney, Tom Mesro, tried to haul us into court and get our documents uh, uh, regarding the Danny Masterson uh, accusations. And also, it was very clear what, what Mesro and Applebaum, his co-counsel, were doing at that time. They were subpoenaing a bunch of people, not just us, and and one thing that became clear was that they were they were clearly doing the bidding of Scientology leader David Miscavige because these subpoenas were not simply about what was going on with the accusations of these women and Danny Masterson. They wanted any information about harassment, which is the subject of the civil lawsuit, not the criminal trial. So Judge Charlene Olmedo at um, the Clara... Shortridge Foltz Criminal Justice Center on the ninth floor was not happy that these attorneys were trying to use her courtroom to get information that would help Scientology in the civil lawsuit. And so uh, thanks to uh, Scott's work, I think this was last August, and uh, I was actually in Israel visiting family at the time and um, got to listen in over the internet and Scott did a great job, and Judge Olmedo quashed that subpoena. So that's the closest we've been to being dragged into court in the 10 years of the existence of the underground bunker. Uh, so we soldier on. Um, <clears throat> this past week, a couple interesting things happened, and I thought I would, I would bring them up. Um, one thing was uh, a week ago, we had a story titled Scientology is fuming about Mike Rinder, Valeska Paris testimony in trafficking case. Um, you know, we've been following that case very closely. It was filed in April by Valeska Paris and another Australian couple, Gawain and Laura Baxter. They're suing, claiming that, you know, they, they were brought into the Sea Org as children 
signed the billion-year contract as children. They worked as children and adults on Scientology's cruise ship, the Free Winds. They were treated horribly. They've got all these just terrible stories in their complaint about punishments and deprivations. And, and Valeska's also alleging that she was sexually uh, abused by other Sea Org people, and she was punished when she came forward. Just, you know, a litany of terrible treatment of these workers who basically were slaves. They couldn't leave the ship. They didn't have possession of their passports. And so it's a trafficking. It's, it's, they filed it under a, a federal trafficking statute. And Scientology responded by immediately um, filing motions to compel arbitration, as they do. They are claiming that Valeska and the Baxters signed these service contracts as Scientologists and that obliges them not to sue in court, but instead to go through Scientology's religious arbitration. Uh, the Baxter, the Baxters, and Valeska responded by um, filing very well done responses. Uh, and one of the chief things in them was they were saying, "Yeah, okay, we signed some contracts, but it was all under duress." And in order to bolster that, they they submitted declarations. The three of them submitted declarations, and Mike Rinder also submitted that declaration, explaining that in the Sea Org, you know, they were they were shoved these documents under their faces during punishments, or they weren't allowed to read them, or they were never explained what was in them. And Mike Rinder, in his declaration, explained how, you know, people in the Sea Org have no control over themselves. The church has total control, basically laying out a case that these contracts were unconscionable. They were signed under duress. The people didn't really know what they were signing. And that's part of their response. So the judge now has, Judge Thomas Barber, has the motions from Scientology and the responses from the plaintiffs. But then this past week, Scientology was clearly hopping mad that these declarations had been included in these responses. And of course, they're always, it always sets them off if Mike Rinder gets involved, right? And so Scientology submitted a, several, you know, document briefs in the docket saying, hey, judge, uh, this isn't cool. They, they've submitted new evidence in the form of these um, declarations. We should get a chance to reply to their untrue statements. And the judge said, no, no, no. And he denied that. And he just, he basically told them, settle down. I've got everything I need. I'll let you know if I have any questions. And so that's how I wrote it up. That's how I saw it. Just reading the documents was clearly Scientology was unhappy that these declarations had been entered into evidence. And the judge told them, no, I don't need your replies. I've got what I need. Well, I wanted to point out one comment I got that day, it was from Texas lawyer, who is a lawyer in, in, uh, in Texas who specializes in appeals, and he's been very helpful uh, over the, several years. Uh, he, he often gives us a very interesting, dispassionate, disinterested view of things, um, and he's usually right. And so I thought it was very interesting. Here was his, here was his statement. He said, getting denied leave to reply either means that the judge just doesn't think the replies are especially helpful or the party moving for leave is already winning. What he meant by that is that 
a judge like Judge Barber knows that if he's, and also let me just again preface the situation here. They are suing not just in the same venue, Tampa Federal Court, but the exact same courtroom that just a few years ago, Scientology won on this issue. They were able to force the Garcias in their lawsuit against Scientology into religious arbitration. And when the Garcias appealed, um, it was upheld by the 11th Circuit. So that's a pretty heavy, heavy precedent in this courtroom, which maybe um, you know has things leaning Scientology's way to begin with. And what what Texas lawyer is saying is that you know if this judge knew that he was going to go against that and deny Scientology's motion for arbitration. Based, you know, and agree with Valeska and the Baxters that they signed these things under duress or they're unconscionable or whatever, he probably would allow Scientology to make those replies as one less thing they could appeal on, right? Um, but if he knows that, well, this precedent is real heavy, I'm probably going to rule in favor of the arbitration thing, then he doesn't need to hear a reply from Scientology. It just wastes his time, clogs up the court. And so that's Texas's lawyer's, you know, uh, observation. It's just a pragmatic one. We don't know what this judge is going to do, but I thought it was an interesting observation from a Texas lawyer that Judge Barber telling Scientology to settle down may perhaps be an indication that he knows he's going to rule their way and he doesn't need them to send him more stuff. So we'll see. That's I don't know what the timetable on this is. I mean, this is a federal judge. He can take as long as he wants. Um, just from past, from the you know rulings we've seen in, from uh, uh, Judge Whittemore and Judge Clyfield and Judge Burge, I would guesstimate that we might know something in three or four weeks, but who knows? Don't hold me to that. Uh, another case, of course, that we're looking at is the Danny Masterson criminal case. And last week there was a hearing. It was so minor, I didn't write a story. Uh, if you remember, the situation was uh, some time ago, some month and a half ago or so, the prosecution, and remember, Danny Masterson's facing 45 years to life in prison if he's convicted of these three counts of forcible rape against three women who were Scientologists at the time. They no longer are. <clears throat> and we're getting close to trial. And a couple, I don't know, a month and a half ago or something, the, the prosecution sent a subpoena to Marty Singer's law firm <clears throat> based on the idea of some things that Marty Singer said, it turns out, in a grand jury here, uh, uh, testimony. So that was quite a revelation last week. We, we wrote about that the prosecution in their briefs was discussing Marty Singer, openly discussing Marty Singer's testimony in a grand jury. And based on that, and also the fact that last year, Tom Mesero, the attorney for Messon then, had brought up a certain document during cross-examination, the prosecution wanted Marty Singer's law firm to turn over some documents based on that. And they fought, both sides fought over that. And Judge Omedo finally ruled that, yes, they're going to have to turn over. Specifically, it's a 2004 
agreement between Masterson and one of his accusers, Jane Doe one. And she has testified that she felt forced into that agreement. And so, uh, and based on, on Mueller, the prosecutor's briefings, he's described it that, look, it's the defense is going to make it look like, Hey, she signed an agreement with him. She's just in it for the money. And so the prosecution wants to see that document because they feel that the situation is different because Jane Doe one has testified she was forced into it. So they want to see what's in it. And, the, and judge Olmedo agreed that the prosecution should have that document since Mesro mentioned it. And Marty Singer talked about it in grand jury testimony. That was last week. So this past Wednesday was the day when they were due to bring that document into court. And representing the law firm was Andrew Brettler, who was also Danny Masterson's attorney in the civil lawsuit. Uh, like we said, it was a minor thing, and he just showed up in court that day, turned over the documents. It turns out it was 52 pages of material. We did learn that little detail. It seems like a pretty good amount of material that was turned over to the prosecution, uh, and it's under seal. We won't be able to see it. But uh, there was one little moment we thought we'd tell you about. Um, we were discussing it with somebody else, and they thought it was pretty significant. So uh, at some point, um, Judge Olmedo and Andrew Brettler were just sort of discussing things as he was turning over these documents. And the prosecution had submitted a protective order to, the, to keep itself, you know, the, 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 the prosecutor was allowed to write the order that would he would have to labor under not to share these documents publicly. And of course, with Mueller writing it, the defense should at least get a chance to look it over and say something. But neither of Danny's criminal defense attorneys were there last week on Wednesday. Sean Hawley wasn't there. Philip Cohen wasn't there. And it was just Andrew Brettler, his civil attorney. And at that, at one point, Brettler said to Judge Olmedo, I don't know whether Mr. Cohen has comments to the protective order that the people provided. He has not responded to my message about that, and I don't think that it is my place to mark up that protective order for this matter. And he's right. He's not Danny's criminal defense attorney. He can't, you know, speak for Danny about a criminal order, you know, protective order that the, the prosecution's written. But it was pointed out to me that it is a little funny that at this crucial time, just a few weeks before trial, Danny's civil attorney can't seem to get Danny's criminal attorney on the phone. Uh, it may be nothing. It may be absolutely nothing. I want to make it clear. This I'm not, I just thought it was interesting and you might want to hear about that, this little drama that played out in front of Judge Olmedo last week. So that was just a minor thing, too minor to write about. But I thought in this special podcast for my, our supporters, I'd let you know about that. Um, what else is going on in that case? Well, subpoenas have gone out from the prosecution. All right. You know, in cases like this, I think it's kind of typical that the, that the prosecution is going to bring in various witnesses that are, that are either, you know, friendly to either side. They want to bring people in and question them on, on the witness stand. Uh, and the defense, I don't know that they will call their own witnesses. They'll probably just do a lot of cross-examination of the people that the prosecution calls in. But the point I'm saying, making is the subpoenas have gone out. People now know whether they're going to be asked to come to court and testify in a very 
highly watched case. The press will be there in, you know, numbers. Uh, and I can't say with certainty about anybody that's been on those subpoenas. I will just say the shockwaves are coming back to me second and third hand about people just, I mean, you know, cause this has been going on for five years. It's always seemed like it was way in the future. And now people are getting subpoenas in the mail, get ready. You're going to come to court and testify. And some of those people are, you know, testifying because they have information that might help Danny's accusers and others will be Danny's friends. And so, uh, I just, it's, I think some really, uh, interesting phone conversations are going on now between people and they realize it's really happening. And I, and I've heard some names. I wish I could share them with you. I'm hoping to be able to share them with you soon. I think there's going to be some very interesting people called to testify in this trial. Um, I may have to wait until they actually show up in court. I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell you the names ahead of time, but this is going to be something. This is really going to be something. And I just, well, I'm going to come back to it in a, in a minute. Um, that's the situation now with the, the Danny Masterson trial today. Uh, I'm recording this on Tuesday today. Uh, I had this story about this interesting LA mayor's race and that, the billionaire Rick Caruso has put out an ad attacking his opponent, uh, former U.S. Congresswoman Karen Bass, because of her appearance at the L.A. Ideal Org open, grand opening in April 2010. And, and you, you know, uh, underground bunker readers know that this became an issue two years ago when it was thought that she might be uh, on the short list to become one of Joe, you know, a Joe Biden running mate. I don't know if that was ever true. That might've been a smokescreen, but the point is uh, Breitbart, uh, the conservative publication wrote about the fact that she had appeared at that ideal org opening. And um, I, you know, I, you've seen my story probably that, that she then said, well, it was in my district. So I went and then I, that two years ago, I looked it up and uh, no, it wasn't in your district. She just didn't handle it very well. Well, two years later, she's running for mayor. And I guess there was a primary earlier this year. And the way that, that since nobody got the outright majority of votes, the way it works there is the top two vote getters then go on to a runoff. And that's what's happening in November. The top two vote getters in this primary were both Democrats, Karen Bass and billionaire Rick Caruso. Now, Rick Caruso has not always been a Democrat. He was a Republican at one time. And... I, I guess the, I've been looking at the press there. Apparently some people are complaining that he's not as, you know, pro-life as he says, a pro, pro-choice as he says he is. He's funded some pro-life candidates in the past. So, you know, clearly Karen Bass is the considered the more progressive of the two candidates, but they're both caught up in scandals involving USC. It's been quite a contentious thing, but the polls and I, you know, I hate to talk about polls, but the polls supposedly say she's got a decent lead on him with just a few weeks to go. Uh, the first ballots get mailed to people's homes just real soon, and the election's in November. And so at this point, he's put out this ad using her footage from that Ideal Org opening when she was just really praising Scientology. It's just awful. And um, ABC7 called me. 
and uh, wanted to know what I thought about it. And I said, look, it is fair game that she is talking in 2010 about what a wonderful thing Scientology is. And then Caruso is putting up a quote from a 1991 Time Magazine story. Because they'd asked me if maybe the time was out of, out of you know sequence or something. I said, no, it is fair to ask Karen Bass, how could you not be aware of the controversy of Scientology when Time Magazine wrote about it in 1991? Then the LA Times was all over Scientology in the 80s and 90s. And there's, you know, most people who live there, I can tell you as someone that grew up there, were aware of that. And, and so it's just, you know, her excuses. Look, she made a bad decision. She went and, and gave a, a speech and and she said in 2000, in two, two years ago, she said, look, I have nothing to do with them. And, and uh, you know, she made it clear that she's now apparently watched Leah's show or something and she realizes they're a bad group. So that was the situation. I told ABC7 that while it was fair game to, to, to juxtapose her footage with those, you know, 1991 statements from Time Magazine, it still seemed unfair to use that footage in a way, in a, an attack campaign ad, trying to make it seem like she still got some connection to them. I don't think that's the case. But here's the upshot, and this is something I saw I wanted to bring up with something great in the comments. I finished off the story by saying, well, I guess the good thing for Scientology watchers is both candidates in the LA's mayor's race at this point have apparently expressed that the Church of Scientology is a menace. I mean, Karen Bass says she's absolutely against their methods. And Rick Caruso is posting all these, you know, quotes about Scientology. So apparently both of these candidates um, understand Scientology's controversies. Well, if that's the case, I said... Whoever wins, can they actually do something about Scientology? And there was a great suggestion in the comments I wanted to remark on. And, you know, because immediately I saw from someone that said, mayors can't do anything. You know, because just, I mean, just last week in the uh, podcast with Mark Bunker, I myself had pointed out that the city can't do much. It's, it's the federal government, right? I said that myself. But one of the readers pointed out, you know what the city can do? You know what the mayor can do? How about returning L. Ron Hubbard way to Barendo Street. Oh, now that is a very interesting suggestion. If Rick Caruso becomes mayor, if Karen Bass becomes mayor, and they are now on the record both, uh, you know, describing Scientology as this nefarious organization, I think it's a really good idea if people then hold them to that and ask them, isn't it time L.A.? reverse that terrible decision from 1996, I think it was, maybe 97, and change that street's name back. Ooh, that would be, that would be something. So I just thought I'd point that out. Thank you, reader. That was a great, great suggestion. Um, well, look, it's, not only is it the 10th anniversary of the Underground Bunker, we are now only two weeks away from the Danny Masterson trial starting in Los Angeles and the Paul Haggis civil trial starting in New York. And I have a question for you because there, you know, sometimes these cases do go away at the very last minute, either in a criminal case, the 
defendant pleads, you know, find some kind of a plea deal with the, uh, with the prosecution. And of course, a civil suit can settle at any minute up to the very last minute. I'm wondering how you feel two weeks away. Both of them are in final negotiation, you know, final moves. They're doing what's called motions in limine, where they're trying to figure out what's going to be actually said at the trial and whatnot. They've submitted trial briefs. I mean, we are in the last nitty gritty between these two of for these two cases to start. The press is ready to cover them. I can tell you. What are the chances that they both actually happen? What are the chances that one or both veer off at the very last second? I'm I'm wondering what you think about that. Uh, and maybe, maybe we can drop some odds. Um, it just feels like one of them to me it, 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 it might be um, might uh, you know not go through. I mean, on the Haggis side, it's got to be very concerning to Haley Bress that the judge, Judge Sabrina Krause, has ruled that he can bring in the Scientology material because that I think that will affect the jury if you know this person, this witness, comes into the court and testifies that you know around the time that that Lawrence Wright was writing about. Uh, Paul Haggis, Tommy Davis asked her to break into Paul's Screen Actors Guild file to find any information about him being aggressive with women. Uh, I I have to think that might, you know, and here's the thing. I don't know if it would sway a jury or not, but it sure is going to be some not very good. It sure is going to be make for some very interesting press and it's not going to be good for Scientology. So that's that's interesting about whether that's actually going to go forward. And then in the Masterson case, I wish I could tell you more, but there are going to be some witnesses, some documents. It's going to be wild. And the Church of Scientology will not come out without a lot of bruises. So again, I you know both of them could veer off at the last second. I don't know. I'm making my last minute preparations to go to L.A. And um, we'll see what happens. But I am interested in what you think about that. And, uh, wow, 10 years. It's, uh, it's been a very fun 10 years. I thank you so much for being there day in and day out. With wonderful observations, great images, hilarious gifts, just all the great things that you guys bring to the site day in and day out. That's what keeps me going. And, uh, I really appreciate that you've been uh, cooperating with me on this move over to Substack, which is really helping me build a larger subscriber base. And uh, let let your friends know every day there's a free story at tonyortega.substack.com. And in the meantime, we will keep things going at tonyortega.org, which as of this morning is 10 years old. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs>